can we just agree that uh, the intro to Poison might be the greatest intro to any song in the 20th century? I agree. I can't think of a better intro than the intro to Poison. I certainly can't on spot. There isn't one, that's why you can't think of one. Fair enough. There you go. Greatest, greatest intro in uh, not just R&B, but maybe in music. This, Ooh. this right here, greatest intro podcasts. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. That said, if you like what we do here at TIR and you don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment, Show your support with revolutionary merch. All right. The best way to describe the merchandise we have is probably from the disembodied voice of reason on this show, producer extraordinaire M2 Song. Hello, hello. Well, I'm a backstage station. Can you tell the people why they should get TIR merchandise? Sure can. Thanks, Jason. Yo, Tantan. Look fresh. Get phone numbers with your new TIR gear. Deadass. Level up your t-shirt game with TIR merch. Any season any weather we got you covered literally <laughs> okay why am i back this one right here this one goes perfectly with tim's by the way this hoodie it does it does this is the uh it's tim rific like the... <laughs> classic wheat colored ones oh yeah i mean is there any other kind I feel that way, but you got the beef and broccoli too, and, and all kinds of other colors. 
too much. That is too much. Thank you to all the patrons and YouTube and Twitch subscribers. You guys are the oh-so-important cogs in the TIR machine. If you'd like to be part of what we do here, have access to the call-in segment of the show. Um, that is always so much fun. And also have access to movie night and also be a part of the interactive Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert. There's only one way to do it, and that's become a patron. As little as $3 a month, $30 for the year, it can all be yours. And you know what else could be yours? Tickets to the live show. Yay. It's coming up. Give them a revolution in New York City. Will M. Toussaint be there? Will Toussaint be wearing a mask? Will it finally come out that Toussaint is actually an AI creation? Pascal Robert and myself. There's only one way to find out. Wherever you are watching the show or listening to the show, there are links in the description and tickets to the live show. That all being said, all of that out of the way, let's bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mount Mount Power. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sunk. I feel like I haven't Ooh. seen you guys in a while. It's been a minute. It's been a minute since... Uh, what's, what's funny is when this airs, it will not have been a minute. <laughs> but Correct. it's been a minute. It has been. So what... So with the pre-records, what's also funny is like facial hair changes too. So you should totally change your facial hair as well, Pascal, so we can really mess with people when we uh, do the live thing. Maybe a thinner mustache. Oh, d- definitely do the pencil thin. Do the debonair 1988 pencil thin light skin dude mustache. I'm not gonna go with the, with the Adolf Hitler look. I'm gonna avoid that. No, no, not don't Hitlerify it. Just get it pencil thin. Like we brought them light skinned dudes used to have the pencil thin mustache. Yeah, the, uh, elder, the elder barge look. Yeah, yeah, the elder barge look. Mm-hmm. Light skinned dude, super super uh, pressed, baggy khakis. You don't remember those guys? You all change this. What makes you all change your facial hair? It's crazy. Actually, it can be just a bad cut. <laughs> That's usually the problem with me. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. The beard is it's all off. Got no hair. I got a chin strap on one side, and I, got... I look like Black Thought on the other. So yeah, just getting that all evened out. But on to more serious matters. <laughs> Much more serious. Much more serious than the F-ups of our facial hair and the pencil-thin mustache that Pascal Robert will have when we go live again next week, which I'm looking forward to. On the morning of September 17th, 1895, Booker T. Washington, along with his wife and children, boarded a train headed to Atlanta, Georgia, to attend the Cotton States and International Exposition. While there was an air of excitement surrounding the journey, Washington was anxious. He had been selected as a keynote speaker at an event that was sure to attract both national and international attention. Washington was no stranger to public speaking, but the Cotton States International Exposition was the first of its kind and the pressure was felt from various sides. The press, both Southern and Northern, had heavily speculated on his speech. 
Negro leaders had offered suggestions on what he should address. Even his own faculty at Tuskegee Institute were nervous regarding any implications the speech would have on the reputation of the school. But the criticisms and speculations were drowned out by the noise of his own internal fears. In his autobiography, Up From Slavery, Washington admitted that he had never set his sights on public speaking nor seen himself as the appointed spokesman of the Negro race. But with every speech delivered, it was becoming more apparent that Washington's thoughts on America's race relations, more specifically the plight of Southern Negroes, drew very curious audiences wherever he went, and the stakes were especially high for his address. While Washington had been invited to several speaking engagements, the Cotton States and International Exposition would be the first time Washington would address a mixed audience of various interests. He later noted that he was painfully conscious of the fact that why I must be true to my own race and my utterances, I was equally determined to be as true to the North as well as to be the best element of the White South. The next morning, Washington delivered what would be known as the Atlanta Compromise speech. Washington spoke to the, of the need for blacks and whites to find ways to coexist under the new context of freedom. Despite the histories that separated the races, Washington believed Americans could find common ground. Washington articulated that Negroes and whites can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. But before he could address the need for racial cooperation, Washington spoke to the need for Negroes and whites to cast down their buckets toward each other. If Negroes were to cast down their buckets towards whites, they would find assistance in their progression into the ideals of American freedom. Washington noted that if Negroes wanted to better their condition on foreign land, they must not underestimate the importance of colonizing right. friendly relations. If these relations were to remain friendly, Negroes must avoid questions of social equality, which he called the extremist folly. If Negroes were to advance, they must understand that any progress of racial advancement would be the result of severe and constant struggle rather than artificial forcing. That is an excerpt of the dissertation from our guest, Bridget Robinson. She is an intellectual historian who is a proud three-time HBCU graduate. She has held faculty positions at James Madison University, Towson University, Howard Community College, and Anne Arundel Community College. Currently, she serves as Associate Professor of History in the Social Sciences Department at Prince George's Community College. Her research interests are eugenics, sexual health, and reproduction issues, and racial uplift politics. Please welcome Dr. Bridget Robinson. Also, please welcome friend of show. Oops. See, everybody's so excited. <laughs> Eugenics expert, Jeff Kennedy. The deep state got Jeff. <laughs> he hit that exit. He hit, yeah, he said, F this. <laughs> he said y'all negroes didn't do an intro for me like that <laughs> y'all are, are missing up the black political class were my job prospects yeah. 
<laughs> I'm messing up my good tenured position. <laughs> All right. I hope Jeff heard none of that. Let's see. I am back. Heard none of that, right, Jeff? I'm back. I didn't hear what you said, but I'm back. Glad you, could, glad you could join us, Jeff. Your lighting is really interesting. <laughs> what up, Jeff? Y'all got jokes. Always a sunny day with Jeff. Always a sunny day. <laughs> Jeff won't even come on the show unless the sun is shining. <laughs> oh, y'all hate me. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Two chairs. Two chairs. Okay. Okay. There ain't no sunshine. <laughs> ain't no sunshine when Jeff's on the show. <laughs> All right. We got to get okay, serious. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. First and foremost, Dr. Robinson, thank you for joining Hi. us. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you explain briefly uh, what you call racial uplift politics and why do you think there's no relevance in this current moment? Um, to me, what I see in racial uplift politics is... Well, it's you? kind of hard because can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as I isolate the word uplift because in order to uplift something, it has to be from a lower position, right? So in order to uplift, there's already the kind All right, let's do this. Y'all ready? Black people as a race or as a whole are in a position of inferiority or they're lower than, right? So how do we collectively move this perceived lower than collective of people to a higher plane? So in my understanding, that's race uplift. Hello? Yes. Can you guys hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, y'all let me in. Continue, Professor. Do I get in? Yes, I'm here. I'm still here. You can continue. Oh, okay. Um, so that's that's my understanding, right? Is that we're already dealing with Black people collectively from a position of inferiority or something that's kind of like lower than. So how do we collectively move them to a higher plane? Um, I think the second part of the question was: Is it still necessary today, or was is that something run about what you asked me? I think. Right. Well, what I wanted to ask, and I appreciate you defining uplift for us. Can you, if if you can, because your your dissertation is so rich in terms of explaining how these various concepts that, and we should assume that the actors that were bringing forth these ideologies had noble goals initially, but they were working from a position that was rooted in their class status and in terms of the consequence that came with that. What I would like for you to do, if you can, is can you explain the origins of 19th century eugenic thought and how it became pervasive among the Black elite of the late 19th and early 20th century? Um, so in order to deal with eugenic thought, you have to go across the Atlantic to Europe, particularly England, right? England being the first nation to really embrace industrialism in the modern era. And usually with industrialism comes urbanization. There was 
an entire underbelly of class of people that, you know, rich society, the aristocracy, the nobles, they were afraid of mixing in with. So you had this, this idea created by Sir Francis Galton that says, in order for the well-born to continue, right, they have to mate with other well-born people. And his entire theory, eugenics, which means literally the well-born, was a reaction to a society that was rapidly changing because of industrialism. It comes across the pond to the United States because interestingly, 100 years or so later, we are going through the same thing. We are a very um, heavily industrialized nation at the end of the 19th century. We have an immigration boom to the east and the west of us. And you got 4.5 million Black folks who are no longer confined to a specific container of space. So there was this, this huge fear of, of race mixing and in that, the loss of whiteness. So that's how eugenics kind of manifested itself here. Generally speaking, whenever you see nations or groups embrace eugenics, there's an anxiety of losing a certain demographic of people. And usually that demographic of people, they're in the minority, but they are the most powerful, but they understand that they are in the minority. And how do we keep reproducing? So how exactly was that intertwined into the philosophy or the thinking of what we have been taught as the vanguard of the Talented Tenth or the initiators of the racial uplift project of the late 19th, early 20th century? So it, it, it intertwined because you had eugenics, which is, was its own separate movement in the early 20th century United States, right? And then right next door, parallel to it, you have, you know, these race uplift conversations. They are two distinct movements. And I, I, I tried to make that clear in my dissertation. Um, the, the parallels or the connections between the two is that there's a real need by um, Black Americans to assimilate, right? And I start off with Booker T. Washington, and I want to say he was not someone who was classist per se. He had his own theories of race progression. His, his use of eugenics wasn't necessarily towards a collective of Black folks. But then you have Du Bois who comes along who is educated at Harvard, who embraces eugenic theory. He goes overseas and he does, you know, doctoral studies and fellowships overseas. He comes back with all of this eugenic influence, and then we get the talented ten. It's fascinating, fascinating. What's interesting that his in, his uh, influence and introduction to this comes as a product of being exposed to Western educational facilities and Western thought. And he begins yes. to impute that in terms of his ideological project regarding how to improve the, con the condition of Black people overall. Do we want yes. to introduce uh, Jeff with some questions? Yeah, because no, I want to ask a question to both uh, Jeff and, uh, and Dr. Robinson here. Uh, there he is. Can you hear us, Jeff? Can you, can you hear us, Jeff? Jeff, can you hear Black people? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever apologize for giggling. Um, 
I, I did want to ask this question, though. Um, mm -hmm. Jeff, can you hear us now? Uh, I did want to ask this question. Eugenics is pretty popular around amongst most thought leaders in this era. Mm -hmm. And doesn't Du Bois push back later in his life on the talented 10th and his uh, his his uh, eugenic theories? He does. And what and what is the thing that kind of gets people out of this mindset? Is it just post the Second War and, and the Nazis? Yes, that is exactly what it was. Um, but to to go back just a little bit with Du Bois, mm -hmm. um, Du Bois, you know, has this daughter, and he writes this very short editorial for the Crisis, the NAACP periodical, and the article is called "So the Girl Marries." And in that article, he's pondering about you know, should I have inserted myself into my daughter's love choices? But um, should I have behaved like the French? And he was alluding to the French practice of marriage restriction, denying people marriage certificates in, in eugenic reasoning. And, you know, he was very aware that it was very important that his daughter carry on the talented Saint legacy. And unfortunately, she did not. Her marriage ended is almost as quickly as the courtship. She, um, you know, was miserable. She wrote letters home to her dad, you know, wanting to end the marriage. He was very upset about that. Um, you know, she she never lived up to his standards. And I think that coupled with, you know, Nazism and how Germany used eugenics later on in his career, he backtracked on um, the talented tent. But as I told my students recently, I said it was too late because nobody remembers or nobody knows Du Bois really backtracked on the talented tent. He is tied to that legacy forever. Like he will never escape it. But that is true. Later in his life, he does ease on that. And he says, it's not so much class status that makes a person, but more so character and integrity so well, one of the questions i wanted to ask you uh professor robinson is that can you elaborate for us how institutions like the national urban league and historically black colleges were financed by philanthropies and foundations like the rockefeller and the rosenwald foundations to promote mm -hmm. eugenics within the black community and within their teaching so I uncovered this part of my research. I was in the, I want to say the American Philosophical Society. It's like an archive depository in Philadelphia. And they house a lot of eugenic records from Cove Spring Harbor and those laboratories up there. And they had a whole folder that said Negro colleges. I'm like, what is this about? And so what eugenic societies would do is they would send questionnaires to HBCUs. Hey, do you have eugenics courses on your, your roster? If you don't, are you interested in eugenics courses? And I was actually surprised to find that when these surveys would be responded and sent back, 
these HBCUs were already saying like, oh, we got eugenics courses on the books. We don't really need any curriculum help or we don't need any guest speakers or advisors because we already have them. Um, so there's that way. There's a direct effort by eugenics societies and think tanks to get eugenics courses into those curriculums. And then the other way is kind of more backdoor, right? So when I think about that, I think about uh, Tuskegee and how it comes to mind. So Booker T. Washington was really into horse breeding. So that kind of started a relationship between him and Charles Davenport and, and all of those big names we associate with eugenics. And they became lifelong correspondents. So, you know, there was one time where the heat went out at Tuskegee and he needed help, you know, paying that bill and getting the heat cut back on. So he reached out to Davenport for money. And through that relationship, Davenport and, and other eugenicists were able to come into Tuskegee to do field research and conduct experiments. Same thing with Howard. Howard um, got a whole new science building because they had a long a longstanding relationship with institutions like the Carnegie Foundation, who were also financing other eugenic projects elsewhere in the country. No, this is really fascinating because what in, in, in the research that I've done, mm -hmm. you see that the 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 talented ideology, which is an organic philosophy that comes out of black elites in the early 19th century, mm -hmm. as as much as we tend to ascribe them as deciding of their own volition to mm -hmm. lead the race, these people are actually being financed by big capital in many, yes. many, in many, many ways to promote ideas that quite frankly work to the disadvantage of poor and working class black people. Yes, they weren't. And, and that's something in, in Pascal, you kind of said, I, I give a little bit more grace here, but that is something that I felt I could allude to, but I was not ready to say out loud that the people we hold dear, the actors in my dissertation, the philosophies of Washington, Du Bois, Kelly Miller, that their, their work on behalf of race uplift was in part because they weren't acting on their own volition. They were financed by um, institutions and people who did not have the best interest of Black America in in mind. So that was that's, that was a hard one to come to grips with. <laughs> well, you know what's what's fascinating, and I, if we if hopefully we can get Jeff in here, what's fascinating for that uh, analysis that you so so eloquently demonstrate is that it demonstrates a correlation with the phenomenon that we often discuss with our on our show here, the contemporary Black political class, and how oftentimes, based on our analysis of their material relationship to the lords of capital and the ruling class in America, that they use race or racial uplift or, race or collective racial identity to create the illusion of working in the interests of Black people when actually they're either fulfilling their own economic interests relative to those who finance them, or they're actually working at the behest of their personal economic aggrandizement. Do you, and this this is gonna be a sharp question. Now, if, if we have, if we can get audio from Jeff, I'd like him to jump in it. Do you think there is grounds to say 
that the idea of having a black elite as a leader tier, leadership tier can be indicted as ideologically bankrupt on its face based on what we've seen in not only your research, but in terms of how it's played out in history. I know that's a, that's a, that's a hard question to ask, but as a scholar of black history and black thought, I'd really like to know what your, your position is on the racial uplift project. That's a tough one. Um, Cause I know I had conversations with Jeff and Jeff has hit me with some of those questions. And I'm like, it's, it's kind of hard for me to answer because I'm stuck somewhere between 1900 and 1968. Um, so in a contemporary sense, I, I think what you're asking me is, can you just ask me that one more time so I can make sure my I get basic, it? My, in other words, in terms of what we've seen from this project, the racial uplift, talented 10th, mm -hmm. leaders of the race discourse, mm -hmm. And what 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 we at this revolution calls the race management the race management elite mm -hmm. are they have they ever been anything more than compradors for the ruling class implementing a ruling class agenda that really serves their interests more so than the agenda or the benefit of the black working class? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Um, and, and my answer to that is just simply put, is that you might think you, like like the actors in my dissertation, you have Black leaders who really have, they believe, the best intentions. But there's two things at play. There's this desire to assimilate into something higher than, than what you, because you're Black, you're Black, right? And, and that's the thing that you have to kind of contend with. It doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter your money or your status. Black people collectively are looked at this way. They are known to be this way. They are stereotyped this way. So to say that something needs to be uplifted is to already assume that it's operating at a lower plane, right? There is a desire to move from that group of people into another, right? Where you're not stereotyped, where you're not looked at as a problem, where you're not assumed to be inferior. That's where the personal biases come in. And I think once the personal biases seep in, you start to turn towards people who look like you and you start to want to distance yourself and not realizing that you're internalizing everything that the other group has already put into position to operate towards the other group, right? And I hope I'm making sense. So no, I don't I don't think in in my opinion, there's ever been a moment where we see the black upper class operating with complete autonomy on the betterment of, of working class black people. Not really, no. That's that's fascinating. And no, I, I appreciate your candor and I appreciate you really, really uh, uh, making that statement. Jason or M2 Sun, do you guys want to add in with any questions? Do we have Jeff available? Anyone else want to chime in? Hmm. I have a question. So you've uh, I'm trying to understand, this is not like the typical narratives that you hear about these people, these amazing people that you hear about right. during Black History Month. Right. <laughs> um, how did you find this information? And and is it that you found this information and just put it together? What was your research like to find this? Um. 
So to answer that question, I got to go back to Durham, North Carolina. Um, I My master's thesis was just a general survey of the North Carolina Eugenics Board. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what this thing was. I was just trying to get out of another paper topic, so I created another paper topic. Um, and so when I was doing that, that research, I found that some of the sterilizations were performed at, at Black hospitals, Lincoln Hospital in Durham, St. Agnes, and I think Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm like, okay, Durham was this upwardly mobile city, Black progression, home of NC Mutual Life, the first Black, you know, owned in life insurance company. We had a tobacco mill. You had you know, North Carolina College for Negroes. I mean, it was solidly upwardly middle class. So if sterilizations are being performed at these black hospitals by black doctors where black nurses are employed, how do they feel about it? Like that, that was a question I always had in the back of my mind that I never answered. So what are, how do they feel about this being a part of the black middle class, right? So when I go to Morgan and I start working on my dissertation, I'm like, I know there's something here. I want to know how the Black middle class felt about Black people being disproportionately sterilized and institutionalized. Mm. And it just snowballed from there. I had no idea what was coming. No idea. No, let me. <laughs> this is really fascinating because, you know, reading your dissertation and reading some of the other work on this subject matter, I'm going to be very honest with you. When I first wrote my piece, and I wrote a piece in Black Agenda Report, for those who don't know, called Black Eugenics, how the Black Misleasia class of the early 20th century supported sterilization of the Black poor. And that that piece sent alarms to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I I had nightmares for two weeks after yeah. writing that piece. Yeah. When I read the research on the comments that these people would make about poor and working class black people, particularly black children, it was it was horrifying. Yes. Yes. It was it was it was horrifying and it was nauseous. They would say things, I think there was a quote from the boys where he said something like Negroes believe that they should be benefited. They don't understand that people are like vegetables. It's the best rather than the it's like you know the it's quantity rather than quality that matters. Yeah, the boys the boys said in Marcus Sanger's the birth control review, he was like, Look, black folks, y'all need to stop breeding so carelessly. Like get a get a check on yourself, right? You don't have the intelligence to breed smart. Like those, there were a lot of those types of comments floating around, floating around it. I was not prepared for it. And the, and the nightmare thing, that's real, right? The emotional toll it took reading about the Black women who were sterilized or the Black women who didn't know they were sterilized until decades later. Um, or having your own parents petition for you to be sterilized. All of that took such an emotional toll on me. So I get it. I Jeff, get it. Jeff, can you jump in? No, I, I actually want to hear um, what she was saying at that particular point. Uh, I want her to complete, finish that thought. Okay. Oh, All right. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, reading, you know, some of the stories where um, I had a, a professor at NCCU, her own mother 
went decades without knowing she was inserted with an IUD device, right? And it was discovered when she was in her late 60s and it happened when she was in her 20s. Like all of those stories were happening. And again, how how does the black middle class feel about this? Like, like I'm thinking, do these doctors go home and, you know, think about the morality of what they were doing? Were they on board with it? All of that weighed in my mind very heavily. Well, what becomes even more disturbing as you read this research, you know, through your dissertation and others is that they believe that this was being done in betterment of the race as a means of uplifting the race to purge purge the race of its dysgenic, you know, components. So sterilizing those who are poor or disabled becomes part of the, the whole philosophy of racial uplift. And let me, I just want to make this point very quickly. In at first, we have respectability politics, right? This is how you eat, this is how you dress, this is how you behave. Um, and then when we look at this phenomenon, the great migration, right? When we see Black folks just fleeing the South, record numbers. Black Northerners were so alarmed by the number of Southern migrants coming into cities like you know Harlem, Detroit, Chicago, that they felt respectability politics and trying to change and reform Black people's behavior, it wasn't quick enough. So after the Great Migration, you start to see them embracing more eugenic solutions like birth control and sterilization, because that's quicker than trying to teach a whole group of people how to behave, how to talk, how to dress. Well, what's this is where I went, Jeff, Yeah, 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 this is the part, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Jeff. Now, this is the part that I actually find out, uh, find to be absolutely fascinating, even though your continue, your whole project is fascinating. When it comes to the respectability politics, can you elaborate a little bit more on respectability politics and eugenics? Sure. So first, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Evelyn Higginbotham and Righteous Discontent. Um, so respectability politics is is just this idea that in order for us not to be harmed, we have to appear as and operate in a high level of of morality, astuteness, you know, just to make it right. Um, and I think about what respectability politics has morphed into now. Because, you know, it's our parents saying, well, don't look like that or don't wear your hair like that. Because there's just this real deep internal fear that every little thing that we do or how we appear is going to be perceived as threatening. So respectability politics was and is, I guess, thought to be an armor that keeps us safe and keeps us alive and keeps us out of danger. One of the comments that uh, I know we've had in our private conversations was that you felt that all respectability politics has a eugenic uh, uh, stem to it, has a eugenic link to it. Can you can mm-hmm. you talk a, a little bit about um, and then how you feel about uh, respectability politics? Has it helped the black community? 
I, <laughs> me linking respectability politics to eugenics did not go over well with older scholars. I will tell you that younger scholars got it. Older scholars, they were like, no, ma'am, <laughs> no. Um, so it, respectability politics is eugenic in the sense that after, the context of it is, is reform. You're trying to civilize and reform a populace of people. That is eugenic, right? And if you're looking at fast forward today, and I was I was um, telling Jeff this in private, President Barack Obama was the epitome of respectability politics. Like we assumed that the night he was elected, that respectability politics worked, right? And then after his election, the aftermath and Trayvon Martin and all of those other young men who were losing their lives and the backlash, the racial backlash to his presidency and black people as a whole, we realized that respectability politics is not gonna save us here. So it, it, it didn't work, it failed us. So what do we do now? Where do we go from here? This is this is really, really well, well, what do you say then to people that say, no, 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 respectability politics did work because Barack Obama did become president. Uh, what's the black woman that's the vice president? Kamala Harris, yeah. is vice yeah. president. Hakeem Jeffries. Is can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, Jeff. Uh, can you? It worked. Hello. Dr. I, yeah. Yeah, I'm here. I just say oh, turn on Fox what? News. <laughs> like, if, if, you, if you think respectability politics work. Turn on Fox News. Mm. Look at all of the political cartoons of Obama with the exaggerated ears. Look at the political commentary on um, VP Harris and her and, and the racial undertones of it. Um, it did not work, right? Because these these two examples are as respectable as you can get. Educated, Ivy League educated, always very neatly dressed you know, very politically correct. And yet they are still subjected to some of the most debased of, of racial conversations you hear today. So no, it does not it does not protect us in the way that we assumed it would. Well, I've never been a fan of, of respectability politics. I think the <laughs> neoliberal push, uh, especially around uh, Obama and uh, Kamala Harris, is you know goes directly back to the eugenic thrust from uh, Booker T. Washington. You know, me and Pascal have had many, many, many conversations uh, about uh, how, if you look all across America, you know what is going on with eugenics now. You know, I'm just doing some research yesterday, and I found out in even in Washington D.C., they did not take the they did not remove the eugenic framework from disabilities and from students till 2006. Mm -hmm. I want to be that very clear. They just changed the language from feeble-minded, imbecile, idiot, all of those frameworks mm -hmm. around residents of Washington, D.C. who were in disabled homes in 2006. That's a, merely, that's a mere 17 years ago. So the, the question is, what was the anti-eugenic training that the employees of the District of Columbia or the majority who are majority black in, in the district government, what was the training they got around 
you know, anti-eugenic, anti-eugenic, uh, uh, removing those frameworks from how they treat people who are uh, disabled and from students in the District of Columbia. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Well, Dr. Robinson, I wanted to ask you another question. Okay. Oftentimes we see the belief that these projects would have been gendered in a way that they are pro a product of a kind of masculinist caretaking or a black male caretaking of the affairs of black people. One of the things that I found fascinating about your dissertation is that you talk about the role of the women's club movement in eugenics and yeah. and and it's it's just amazing to see how all of these you know very well educated elite black women were supporting some of the most horrendous ideas about poor and working class people and particularly poor black women can you elaborate on the way in which the uh, black women's club movement and eugenics intersected in the early 20th century Sure. So club women activity, black or white, came out of the social purity movement of like the 1880s, 1890s, social purity and was a, like a really big thing. And so a lot of middle class women formed clubs around, again, just a response to industrialism and immigration, right? These poor souls are coming over here. They need they need food, they need shelter, and let's give them a Bible too, right? So um, so club activity came out of that. But eugenics also is linked to the social purity movement as well. So it was just by design that club activity amongst middle-class women in eugenics would intersect. The, the club women part, for me, it was the chapter I started first. It was the chapter I finished last. It was the chapter that was the most researched because I had to make sure I got it right. These women were more grassroots than their male counterparts, right? So let's let's start there. They were the ones in the community. They were the ones doing the institution building. They and I think I have a story somewhere in there where I talk about how um, Margaret Washington went down to a plantation and named somebody else's child, right? <laughs> because all in the name of respectability. And I think about what Black women had to face in, in that time period, early 20th century. It was extraordinary, more so than Black men being caught in the middle of, of race and gender and what society felt about Black women, their agency, their bodies. So more than the men, they took the mantle of respectability and they hammered it much more harshly. And they put a lot of blame um, on the black community, particularly lower class black women than their male counterparts. Mm. They couldn't let it go. And, and I, being a black woman, I understand why. Does, is it still harmful? Yes, because it's, it's almost like you're blaming someone for their own victimization, right? But I get—I I can only imagine being a black woman in the early 20th century. Like, my God, what what would that look like? You know, you're 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 having trouble 
navigating what it's like to be a woman. You're having trouble navigating what it's like to be Black. You have a whole society that believes that your body is just, you know, prone to abuse and, and misdeeds. It's like, how do we get around that? And for some reason, these club women really believe that if you wear shirts that are up to your neck and skirts down to your knees, then maybe you'll be safe from some some of that victimization, but it didn't work. It didn't work. Well, what Dr. Robinson? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. Can, can you tell us a, a little bit more about a story that you told me about when you spoke up for young men who had on uh, their pants hanging down at, at a community event? Can you, can you share with us a little bit about that story? Yeah, so um, I was I was at Busboys and Poets. Um, there was a play that the in Washington uh, DC in DC, sorry, that the um, I think it's the Dorothy Heights branch of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. They were doing a play, and I think the premise of that play was um, if. It, <laughs> If uh, Martin Luther King has just died, so Malcolm X and Megger Evers are welcoming him into heaven. And then they fast forward to, I guess, 50 some odd years later. And um, they're in heaven, just the actors are just pointing down at black folks. Look at that, look at that, look at that young man over there listening to that gangster music. And you know, the audience is eating it up and I am appalled, right? because I'm not hearing anything positive about the last 50 years of, of black life and, and, and culture. All I'm hearing is, you know, these actors who are acting as our heroes saying, we didn't do a good job. We're not good enough, right? Um, I wish I can spank him. And it bothered me so much. So I stood up and I said, you know, here's the thing about being black. You cannot cherry pick the culture. Either you are or you aren't. There, there are parts of it that you may not like. There are parts that you might have a problem with, but you can't dismiss it. Rap music is a part of the culture. Pants sagging is a part of the culture, right? You cannot cherry pick the best parts from the worst parts. And everybody in the audience just jumped on me so hard. Yes, we can. Yes, we can, right? Um, who do you think you are? And <laughs> I was, I was, I was literally attacked. I was told to sit down. My mic was taken from me. Um, and it, I think that was the first time I was like, wow, I'm gonna have a really hard time navigating grad school if I continue on this topic. But I did so. You know what's yeah. fascinating? It's fascinating about that little vignette that you you shared with us is that, mm -hmm. particularly contemporarily, we hear. I'm sure you've seen these memes on social media before, where you see pictures of black people from like the 40s or 50s in suits, and you you will see people make comments like, "See, this is what we look like." 50, 60 years ago, it was integration that messed us up. Now look at what we look like now with the saggy pants. And what's interesting right. about the research that you and shout out to our friend Tori Reed in his book, Not Arms But Opportunity, demonstrated is that the same contempt for the for the attire, the 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 the, the posture, the behavior of the black poor and working class that you see today is consistent 
going back to the 19th century. And it's only because we don't see the images of what poor and working guys, black folk who were sharecroppers were and what they were dressed like. And that we don't understand how much contempt. And if you read the actual records that you read in the books and the records of the Urban League dealing with black Southerners coming up north, the contempt that they had for these folk is just vile in terms of how they... They were, I mean, even when you look at the second great migration where you have Black people going west post-1945, there's a whole, you know, you can see it on YouTube mm-hmm. where there is just a whole room of, of Black middle class. Like, I mean, we like Negroes, but not those Negroes. We don't want them here. Yeah. And there's also, it's, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was saying like, when I when I was in the Library of Congress in the archives and I read how Margaret Murray, how Margaret Washington and her friends went down to a local plantation and went into a sharecropper's home and this woman had just given birth and they took her child and christened it. And the dad wasn't even around. He was in the field somewhere. So it was just the mom present. They, they dressed her baby, they christened it and they gave it they they named him booker they named him booker and i'm like that is that is insane and and they did that out of no other reason than you know we want this child to have a respectable name we want the child to be respectable don't name it something crazy and they were saying this in the early 20th century so i'm like wow black folks have always felt the way about so naming our babies (laughs) doesn't that kind of speak to the fact that things don't change you know, or the more things change, the more they say the same kind of mentality. Like yeah. when you think about um, music, people talk mm-hmm. about, you know, you're that one vignette talking about these guys criticizing hip hop or style of dress. Style of dress yeah. has been criticized even if you were in a suit, because I could tell if you're a gangster or not by the suit that you wear, right? In, right. in these eras. Yeah. And also, mm-hmm. I listen to blues music from the early days of the phonograph Mm -hmm. and a lot of these black artists especially the females were extremely vulgar they were saying some wild stuff oh (laughs) yeah oh my goodness yeah uh there's Mm -hmm. a there's a movie was it chadwick boseman's last movie yeah ma rainey's black bottom Mm -hmm. has anyone bothered to listen to anything from that era Yes, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know." There's not one one contemporary urban artist that can hold a candle to the in-your-face vulgarity that is the blues of the of the uh, 20s and 30s. Is that why they're not really in the? Sorry. That's a very profound profound point, Jason. Only a musician would be able to bring that up. I would know. Shout out to you because I've heard. I recently was mm-hmm. exposed. I didn't mm-hmm. know that about old blues, particularly female. And mm-hmm. I heard there's a there's a there's like a clip on social media yeah. of this old like 1920s yeah. to 30s woman who's a blues singer. Yeah. She's saying something wild. I didn't think it was I mean, real. Wild. I didn't it's think it was real. She had a whole real. song called like "You Can Eat My Thing." Dun, 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 yeah. Don't eat my ass. And I was like, this ain't real. It's very <laughs> like it's real. Is that why they're not in the Pantheon, the Black History yes. Month Pantheon of yes. Heroes? Absolutely. So you see, we have these divisions. Um, 
northern and southern and light and dark. I want to know where colorism, what part colorism plays in the eugenics conversation back then. So <laughs> that's interesting. I remember I was at Moreland Spring Garden. I was doing some research and I went to the archivist on duty and I said, hey, I said, um, did you guys like, is it true? Did y'all ever do the, the, the paperback test? And she, I mean, her face was like ashen. She was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. We didn't do that. I'm like, well, I was just wondering because, you know, it's an urban myth. So I was just wondering. Mm -hmm. But I sat down with a lot of yearbooks from Howard University in this time frame, And I did not see, I saw just as many dark skinned women as you did light. Like it, it was, it was, it was not an overt colorist thing looking mm -hmm. at these very early yearbooks decade by decade by decade. And so because I saw that, I made the decision right there to not go into the realm of colorism. I was like, I'm not going to do it. Add that to the fact that although both my parents are black, I'm light. So I don't know how to navigate this topic yet. And I don't want to. So I intentionally stayed away from it. But did I come across readings and research and, and books that advocated for lighter toned black people um, to be a thing? Yes, I did. I just didn't know how to interpret that in my research. That's fascinating. It's, it's really, really fascinating. I, 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 I can't applaud you enough, uh, Professor Robinson, for this, for this scholarship, because one of the things that we try to highlight on This Is Revolution podcast that we always kind of get challenged on ourselves is how much the unwillingness of Black America to confront how class within Black people leads to a politics of containment that basically allows the phenomenon that we were discussing, where we have mm -hmm. a leadership tier that works to the at the behest of the ruling class and at the detriment mm -hmm. of the poor and working class that that the inability to really interrogate how class functions in American society among black people is one of the reasons why these kinds of historical vicious cycles continue and over and over and over again. And what right. I find refreshing about your work is that not only does it try to effectively puncture the illusion of racial unity, but it takes a sledgehammer to that and explains that there has always been this schism of people and even the great luminaries of Black history worked within this paradigm where they were actually kind of assets of the ruling class that didn't really help. One thing I want to ask, because in the research I've seen about eugenics and the Black elite. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anyone address where Black socialists and communists who did exist at this in these periods of time, mm -hmm. and how, and, and I would argue, offered a much more a sophisticated solution to the conditions of poor and working class Black people, where they stood on these issues. Have you seen any research in terms of where they stood and how they reacted to them or what their positions were? 
I haven't seen, there are definitely some scholarship that I've read that was very critical of Du Bois and Washington and the Black ruling elite, but I haven't seen a direct attack on the support of eugenics. What I have seen is more so in alignment with class solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. You might be white and poor, we're black and poor, but we need to unite because this is the common enemy. Unionization, I've seen those conversations, but I've never seen anyone, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist, I just haven't seen it. I've never seen scholarship where a black socialist is directly challenging the behavior of the black race class, I mean, leadership class, in terms of their, their view of lower class black people. I haven't on, seen it. On the eugenics issue. I mean, on the I, eugenics I, issue, yes. Okay. And, and, that, and I think, I, I would imagine that that is kind of hard to do because I don't even think that they understood they were eugenic. They understood the language, they understood how to apply the theory, but to get them to admit, you know, if I were in a room with Du Bois and I said, are you a eugenicist? I don't think he would say out loud, yes, I was, right? So I think it's difficult to kind of try to find that that shard of, of archival information, but I'm gonna write it down and I'm gonna look and I'll let you know what I find. <laughs> Well, let's bring in uh, Jeff. Can you hear us, Jeff? Oh, we can't hear you. If I if I if I may yes. say this, you know, yes. these were ordinary people living in extraordinary times, right? Mm-hmm. And at first, I was hammering away, like, yeah, stick it to the man, eat the rich. Um, but as I was moving through the dissertation, it it was like, it took such an emotional toll on me. And I had to think about, okay, remove yourself because I'm starting to insert my own politics here, right? And there are places where I gave grace and I felt like, because I was not there, I was not present. I did not live in Jim Crow. I did not live in segregation that maybe I'm gonna just give the information and let the reader interpret it but it took such an emotional toll on me that the moment i graduated i completely just i walked away from it like all of my friends they were getting book contracts and stuff and i was like i'm gonna go work on a farm somewhere like i don't (laughs) i don't want anything i don't want anything to do with scholarship let me teach put me in the classroom but i don't i don't want to write jeff right he calls me some told me not to pick up because, you know, spam callers, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna pick up. Mm-hmm. I pick up and he's very cryptic. It's this Bridget Robinson. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm mopping my basement. I'm like, yeah, like I was very like interested, but short because I did not know where this was going. And um, he was like, yeah, I found you on the internet. And I'm like, what, you know? But, you know, he he calls and he lets me know, like, I'm into eugenics. I'm researching it. I'm doing these things. I read, uh, I came across your abstract. I'm interested in your research. Can I read it? And from that conversation, I guess he kind of brought me back to life a little bit because I had completely put it away. 
I, I, I completely, I was just going to be a happy little teacher for the rest of my life. But well, I yeah. guarantee you, <laughs> if you know Jeff Kennedy long enough, you realize that you can't go two conversations without the word eugenics coming up. So there's, there's no question that because Jeff and I talk about all the time. Jeff calls me all the time yeah. when he, and he's always discussing some new way. And Jeff yeah. actually came, we got in contact as a result of me writing that piece in Black Agenda Report. And as I mm -hmm. mentioned, I can, I can't begin to understand the way you had in your back for writing a whole dissertation. But after writing that one piece that was less than 2,000 words, I literally was like, I was having nightmares from what yeah. I read. So I can only imagine what you had to go through writing a whole dissertation about this and defending it in front of people from that class. I mean, it must have been this in, in, incredible. I defend. I had to defend it everywhere I go. Um, when I was presenting at a sala, um, when a friend of mine would write, like everywhere I went, I had to defend what I was doing. And it, I, I, like I was telling Jeff, I think it played a part in how I was treated after I graduated. Um, you know, it, it, it did not, there was no fanfare. After I walked across stage, the lights went out and people just, you know, left. And I think I didn't really get so much institutional support after that moment because of my topic and it's okay i don't i don't yeah. blame anyone but i put it away because i had to and you know if jeff didn't find me i wouldn't be talking to you guys today so i just want to thank him for for finding me and and bringing me back to my research because it is important well i really want it's like Bridget off the farm. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's it's been it's been over an hour, and uh, and let's wrap up. Jeff, do you have any parting words for us? You can't hear them. You can't hear your words, but we're gonna read Jeff's lips. He says, "Jason and Pascal are two of the most wonderful men I've ever met." And, uh, if it wasn't for Jason and Pascal, uh, I don't know where we'd be in America. And. Uh, <laughs> They should have been in the Matrix movies instead of Cornell West. Nice. Nice. <laughs> That's funny. That's uh, Jeff's audio's out. And from now on, anytime someone's audio's out, I'll just translate uh, what they're really trying to say. And it will always be compliments to me and Pascal. I like it. I like it. I'm looking forward to Bridget's PBS special. Well, well before we go, Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Robinson, number one, mm -hmm. I hope you're translating your dissertation into a book. And number mm -hmm. two, would you be willing to come back? We're, we're having, for, we're, we're proposing amongst our crew for Black History Month to be uh, interrogating class amongst Black America. If possible, mm -hmm. would you be interested in coming on to discuss, and it's not necessarily this again, but any aspect of the elements of class, maybe the, the, the Black women's club movement in more yeah, in detail. Yeah. And come on and uh, and uh, nurture our audience with some of the wonderful learning you have because I I I am so impressed with the value that you are really bringing to Black thought with this kind of work because it's original it's rare and I know from the scholars who deal with this stuff how much even the white institutional elite don't want to cover this either yeah yeah um so i am working um on a book proposal that i'm going to send out to different 
academic presses. So I am back. I am, I am, as she's off the farm, I am back. Um, <laughs> so um, yes, I was, I would love to come back. I am, I am ready to jump back into the scholarship part of, of my doctorate degree. So sure. Anytime, anytime. Well, thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you, Toussaint. This was a, a very informative show. Thank you guys for having me. And do you have any parting words, Pascal or Toussaint? Nope. Everybody nope. get off the farms. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Got some work to do. Right. <laughs> right. Still sharecropping. <laughs> <laughs> Bridget was like, they was mean to me everywhere. I couldn't even get my nails done. It was like, that's that woman that wrote that old dissertation when she bedding everybody. Yeah, yeah. Let me just go hide in the classroom and, and work on my heart. Yep. Mm -hmm. Couldn't yeah. even get her hair done without somebody just, mm hmm. <laughs> tell somebody about something. Yeah, that's what I did. All, all of my friends were getting these big appointments and postdocs and book contracts. I was like, I'm down here at community college. I'm fine. I'm working on my farm. Mm -hmm. Leave me alone. Couldn't <laughs> even tough. go to Publix. It was just mm -mm. Publix. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Robinson. Thank you guys. Thank you guys Kennedy. for everything. Um, we are out. Thank you. Bye.